And welcome to Next Reads, a podcast where we read the first chapter of a young adult or middle grade book to help you figure out what to read next. This podcast might contain language or situations some readers might find offensive or unsettling. The North Liberty Library does not necessarily endorse any author's views, but it does support the freedom of speech and the freedom to read. I'm your host, Kayla, the Youth and Teen Services Librarian at the North Liberty Library. My pronouns are she and her. Welcome, listeners. Today, we'll be reading The Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bouley. This is her debut book, and it was published in 2021, so fairly recently. She just published her second novel, Warrior Girl Unearthed, which was published in May of this year. So if you like this one, feel free to check out her second one as well. The Firekeeper's Daughter is a young adult book. It's a fiction with some elements of mystery and thriller. It also has a fake dating trope, if you're interested in that. This was the 2023 All Iowa Read selection for teens. And some content warnings for this book. It contains elements of alcoholism, drug use, sexual assault, suicide, violence, and racism. Please take care of yourself first. The summary on the back of the book is, 18-year-old Donis has always felt like an outsider with her mixed heritage both in her hometown and on the nearby Ojibwe reservation. When she witnesses a murder, Donis reluctantly agrees to go undercover, but secretly she pursues her own investigation, tracking down the culprits with her knowledge of traditional medicine. As the bodies pile up, Donis finds herself caught in a web of deceit that threatens the people she loves the most. Without further ado, let's read the first chapter of The Firekeeper's Daughter. And there's a prologue first. I am a frozen statue of a girl in the woods. Only my eyes move, darting from the gun to their startled expression. Gun, shock. Gun, disbelief. Gun, fear. Thumb, 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 thump, thump, thump. The snub-nosed revolver shakes with tiny tremors from the jittery hand aiming at my face. I'm going to die. My nose twitches at a greasy sweetness, familiar, vanilla, and mineral oil. WD-40. Someone used it to clean the gun. More scents. Pine, damp moss, skunky sweat, and cat pee. Thump, 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 thump. The jittery hand makes a hacking motion with the gun, as if wielding a machete instead. Each diagonal slice toward the ground gives me hope. Better a random target than me. But then, terror grips my heart again, the gun, back at my face. Mom, she won't survive my death. One bullet will kill us both. A brave hand reaches for the gun, fingers outstretched, demanding. Give it, now, thump, thump. I'm thinking of my mother when the blast changes everything. Part one, Wabanong, East. In Ojibwe teachings, all journeys begin in the eastern direction. Chapter 1. I start my day before sunrise, throwing on running clothes and laying a pinch of sema at the eastern base of a tree, where sunlight will touch the tobacco first. Prayer begins with offering sema and sharing my spirit name, clan, and where I'm from. I always add an extra name to make sure Creator knows who I am a name that connects me to my father, because I began as a secret, and then a scandal. I give thanks to Creator and ask for Zungi the Eowyn, because I'll need courage for what I have to do after my five-mile run. 
I've put it off for a week. The sky lightens as I stretch in the driveway. My brother complains about my lengthy warm-up routine whenever he runs with me. I keep telling Levi that my longer, bigger, and therefore vastly superior muscles require more intense preparation for peak performance. The real reason, which he would think is dorky, is that I recite the correct anatomical name for each muscle as I stretch. Not just the superficial muscles, but the deep ones too. I want an edge over the other college freshmen in my human anatomy class this fall. By the time I finish my warm-up and anatomy review, the sun peeks through the trees. One ray of light shines on my SEMA offering. Nishin, it is good. My first mile is always hardest. Part of me still wants to be in bed with my cat Harry, whose purrs are the opposite of an alarm clock. But if I power through, my breathing will find its rhythm, accompanied by the swish of my heavy ponytail. My legs and arms will operate on autopilot. That's when my mind will wander into the zone, where I'm part of this world, but also somewhere else. The miles pass in a semi-alert haze. My route takes me through campus. The prettiest view in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan is on the other side. I blow a kiss as I run past Lake State's news storm, Fontaine Hall, named after my grandfather on my mother's side. My grandmother, Mary, I call her Grand Mary, insisted I wear a dress to the dedication ceremony last summer. I was tempted to scowl in the photos, but I knew my defiance would hurt mom more than it would tick off Grand Mary. I cut through the parking lot behind the student union toward the north end of campus. The bluffs showcases a gorgeous panoramic view of the St. Mary's River, the International Bridge into Canada, and the city of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Nestled into the bend of the river east of the town is my favorite place in the universe, Sugar Island. The rising sun hides behind a low, dark cloud at the horizon beyond the island. I halt in place, awestruck. Shafts of light fan out from the cloud, as if Sugar Island is the source of the sun's rays. A cool breeze ruffles my t-shirt, giving me goosebumps in mid-August. Zisibaka Minising, I whisper in Anishinaabe Moen, the name for the island, which my father taught me when I was little. It sounds like a prayer. My father's family, the firekeeper's side, is as much a part of Sugar Island as its string-fed streams and sugar maple trees. When the cloud moves on and the sun reclaims her rays, a gust of wind propels me forward, back to my run and to the task ahead. 45 minutes later, I end my run at Evercare, a long care facility a few blocks from my home. Today's run felt backward, peaking in the first mile and becoming progressively more difficult. I tried chasing the zone, but it was a mirage just beyond my reach. Morning, Donis. Mrs. Bunsara, the head nurse, says from behind the front desk, Mary had a good night. Your mom's already here. Still catching my breath, I give my usual good morning wave. The hallway seems to lengthen with each step. I steel myself for possible responses to my announcement. In my imagined scenarios, a single furrowed brow conveys disappointment, annoyance, and a retracting of previous accolades. Maybe I should wait until tomorrow to announce my decision. Mrs. B didn't need to say anything. The heavy scent of roses in the hallway announces mom's presence. When I enter the private room, she's gently massaging rose-scented lotion on my grandmother's thin arms. A fresh bouquet of yellow roses adds to the floral saturation levels.
Grand Mary's been at Evercare for six weeks now, and the month before that, in the hospital. She had a stroke at my high school graduation party. Visiting every morning is part of the new normal, which is what I call what happens when your universe is shaken so badly you can never regain the same access as before. But you try anyway. My grandmother's eyes connect with mine. Her left brow raises in recognition. Her right side is unable to convey anything. Bon matin, Grand Mary. I kiss both cheeks before stepping back for her inspection. In the before, her scrutiny of my fashion choices bugged the crap out of me. But now, her one-sided scowl at my oversized t-shirt feels like a perfect slap shot on the top shelf. See? I playfully lift the hem to reveal yellow spandex shorts, not half naked. Halfway through her barely perceptible eye roll, Grand Mary's gaze turns vacant. It's like a light bulb behind her eyes that someone switches on and off arbitrarily. Give her a moment, Mom says, continuing to smooth lotion onto Grand Mary's arms. I nod and take in Grand Mary's room. The large picture window with a view of a nearby playground. The dry erase board with the heading, Hello, my name is Mary Fontaine, and a line for someone to fill in after my nurse. The line after my goals is blank. The vase of roses surrounded by a framed photo. Grand Mary and Grandpa Lorenzo on their wedding day. A duo frame with Mom and Uncle David as praying angels in white communion outfits. My senior picture fills a silver frame engraved with Class of 2004. The last picture taken of the four of us. Me, Mom, Uncle David, and Grand Mary at my final hockey game brings a walnut-sized lump to my throat. I went to sleep many nights listening to mom and her brother laughing, playing cards, and talking in a language they had invented as children, a hybrid of French, Italian, abbreviated English, and make-up nonsensical words. But that was before our Uncle David died in April and Grand Mary, grief-stricken, had an intercerebral hemorrhage stroke two months later. My mother doesn't laugh in the new normal. She looks up, her jade green eyes are tired and bloodshot. Instead of sleeping last night, mom cleaned the house in a frenzy while talking to uncle as if he were sitting on a sofa watching her dust and mop. She does this often. I wake up during those dark hours when my mom confesses her loneliness and regrets to him, unaware that I'm fluent in their secret language. While I wait for grandmother to return to herself, I retrieve a lipstick from the basket on the bedside table. Grand Mary believes in greeting the day with a perfect red smile. Gliding the matte ruby over her thin lips, I remember my earlier plea for courage. To know Zungi de Ewen is to face your fears with a strong heart. My hand twitches the golden tube of lipstick, a jiggly needle in a seismograph. Mom finishes with the lotion and kisses Grand Mary's forehead. I've been on the receiving end of those kisses so often that an echo of one warms my own forehead. I hope Grand Mary can feel that good medicine even when the light bulb is off. When my grandmother was in the hospital, I kept track of how many times she blinked during the same 15-minute window each day. Mom didn't mind my record-keeping until she noticed the separate tally marks for light bulb on and light bulb off. The overall number of blinks hadn't changed, but the percentage of alert ones, light bulb on divided by total blinks, had begun to decrease. My mother got so upset when she saw my tally that I kept the blank notebook hidden in Grand Mary's private room now, bringing it out only when mom isn't here. It happens.
Grand Mary blinks and her eyes brighten, light bulb on. Just like that, her focus sharpens, and she is once again a mighty force of nature, the Fontaine matriarch. Grand Mary, I say quickly, I'm deferring my admission to U of M and registering for classes at Lake State, just for freshman year. I hold my breath, anticipating her disappointment in my deviation for the plan, Donis Lorenza Fontaine, MD. At first, I went along with it, hoping to make her proud. I grew up overhearing people whisper with a sort of vicious glee about the big scandal of Mary and Lorenzo Fontaine's perfect life. I pretended so well and for so long that her plan became my plan, our plan. I loved that plan, but that was in the before. Grand Mary fixes me with a gaze as tender as my mother's kisses. Something passes between my grandmother and me. She understands why I had to alter our plan. My nose tingles with a pre-cry pinpricks from relief. Sadness or both. Maybe there's a word in Nishinabe Moen for when you find solid fitting in the rubble after a tragedy. Mom rushes around the bed, pulling me into an embrace that whooshes the air from my lungs. Her joyful sobs vibrate through me. I made my mom happy. I knew I would, but I didn't expect to feel such relief myself. She's been pushing for me not to go away to college, even encouraging Levi to pester me about it. Mom pleaded with me to fill out Lake State admission form back in January as a birthday gift to her. I agreed, thinking there was no way anything would come to pass. Turns out, there was a way. A bird thuds against the window. My mother startles, releasing me from her grip. I only get three steps toward the window when the bird rises, fluttering to regain equilibrium before resuming its journey. Grandma Pearl, my Anishinaabe Nokomis on my firekeeper's side, considers a bird flying into a window a bad sign. She would rush outside, one leathered brown hand at her mouth muttering, uh, 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 oh, at its crooked neck before calling her sisters to figure out which tragedy was just around the corner. But Grandmary would say it was random and unfortunate, nothing more than an unintended consequence of a clean window. Indian superstitions are not facts, Donis. My Zaganash and Anishinaabe grandmothers could not have been more different. One viewed the world as its surface, while the other saw connections and teachings that ran deeper than our known world. Their push and pull on me has been a tug of war my entire life. When I was seven, I spent a weekend at Grandma Pearl's tar paper house on Sugar Island. I woke up crying with an earache, but the ferry to the mainland had shut down for the night. She had me pee in a cup and poured it in my ear as I rested my head in her lap. Back home for Sunday dinner at Grand Mary and Grandpa Lorenzo's, I excitedly shared how smart my other grandma was. Grandma Pearl fixed my earache with my pee. Grand Mary recoiled and a heartbeat later glared at my mother as if this was her fault. Something split inside me when I saw my mother's embarrassment. I learned there were times when I was expected to be a Fontaine and other times when it was safe to be a firekeeper. Mom returns to Grand Mary, moving the cashmere blanket aside to massage lotion on a spindly alabaster leg. She's exhausting herself looking after my grandmother. Mom is convinced she will recover. My mother has never been good at accepting unpleasant truths. A week ago, I woke up during one of Mom's cleaning frenzies. I've lost so much, David, and now her. When Donis leaves, desperate. She uses the French word for disappear, to fade or pass away. Eighteen years ago, my arrival changed my mom's world, ruined the life her parents preordained for her. I'm all she has left in this world. Grandma Pearl always told me, bad things happen in threes, 
Uncle David died in April. Grand Mary had a stroke in June. If I stay home, I can stop the third bad thing from happening, even if it means waiting a little longer to follow the plan. I should go. I kiss mom and then Grand Mary goodbye. As soon as I leave the facility, I break into a run. I usually walk the few blocks home as a cool down, but today I sprint until I reach my driveway. Gasping, I collapse beneath my prayer tree, waiting for my breath to return, waiting for the normal part of the new normal to begin. And that's the end of the chapter. What do you think is going to happen next? Do you think she's going to be able to balance the two sides of her heritage? When do you think the mystery is going to start? What do you think happened in the prologue? I hope you found the chapter intriguing enough to check it out. If not, there's always another book just waiting to be discovered. You can check this book out as a physical book here in the library or an online book. It's available both as an ebook and an e-audiobook. If you need any library card help or any help with Libby, please let us know. And please check the show notes for some read-alikes. Thank you for listening and join me next time for another Next Reads.